right, well, good morning. Got six, six more minutes left in morning, so I don't know what your morning has been like, but uh, anybody run the uh, Donna Marathon this morning? It's a virtual marathon this year? I did. So now I can tell everybody I completed a mar marathon, albeit virtual. Actually, I didn't run at all, but you know, I don't know, in my mind, right? My mind was running this morning. My mind, in preparation for this sermon, has already run a marathon. So therefore, I'm completed a marathon, right? There you go. Well, um, so excited to be with you this morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the leaders here at Ocean City Church. And uh, my wife and I, Anne, have been involved with this church since we planted it in 2010. And it has been an incredible journey. I'm so excited, you know, some 11 years later to be having a vision meeting talking about the church in the future. Um, and it has, been, it has been a work of God. It's been exciting to see God work, not only in the church, but in the lives of people in this church. And so um, we've been walking through Acts um, as a church, studying Acts, and we're gonna be getting to Acts 18 um, this week that we're gonna talk about. One of the challenging things for me, and maybe for you too, but one of the challenging things is that when I read or study Acts, and especially the life of Paul, and this is true of the epistles too, that I always feel like, man, I should be doing more, that I don't do enough to leverage what God has given me in my life for his purposes and his kingdom. And I feel like for me, and I would suspect for some of you in here too, for the better part of my life, I felt guilty that I'm not doing more. And I see Paul's life and what he sacrificed and what he went through. And you see the life of the apostles and we find out that, you know, we see martyrs and, and I'm like, that's not my life. But I've been, I felt guilty about not doing more. And it goes back to, so I became a Christian in, in college. And um, shortly after um, I became a Christian, I got really involved in, in campus ministry where I was leading Bible studies. I was going on mission trips and um, I kind of had this idea planted in me that if I didn't pursue full-time vocational ministry as a profession, that somehow I was, I was selling my training that I'd gotten and everything that had been invested in me and what God had done in my life, that I was selling all of that short if I didn't pursue that. And so the job that I was being groomed for, um, I, I, one of the things that they wanted me to do was, hey, we want you to go to a campus, but we want you to remain single for the next three to five years. And for a young guy fresh out of college, Ann and I were dating, and we kind of felt like we we're on that trajectory. And I said, you know, I, I just, I mean, you know, Paul's pretty clear. Like, if you're burning with desire, it's better for you to get married, right? So I'm in that category. So they said, well, long story short, they did, we decided to go different ways. Uh, the ministry and I decided to go different ways, and that job wasn't going to work out for me. And so it was a super exciting time. Ann and I get married. You know, we go and get the job like everybody's supposed to get. And that's a whole nother story about how all of that worked out. We get the one-bedroom apartment, and boom, now we're, we're in this we're in this rhythm of life. We're not even really involved with the church because we were parachurch ministry, which parachurch ministry just means it works, operates independently of the church. And so we didn't really know what the value or what the church should really mean to us or what our place was even in the church because we're so smart. We know everything about campus ministry, like the church should just welcome us in to teach all of their discipleship programs, but that wasn't the case. 
Um, so we settled into, an, into an, a routine, but I couldn't shake this idea that God was disappointed with me, that somehow going this route for my life meant that I didn't do what God really wanted me to do, which was to go into ministry. And this led to depression, and it led to, at the time I was a, a pharmaceutical rep, some of you have heard this story, but I began abusing prescription drugs as a means of coping with this pain and this depression and this darkness. And I always say, you may have heard me say it before, say it before but um, n- nobody ever, there's, there's stories, if, they, if you've ever used drugs, your story never goes, I started using drugs and then my life just got grand. Like, <laughs> things tend to move in a more downward trajectory, and that was me. It was a really, really a place of darkness. And the bottom line in all of this was my joy was gone. I had no joy. I believe I was a believer at the time, but I had no joy in my life because I felt like this dark cloud was hanging over me of God just is disappointed with who I've become. And so if we look at the connection to Acts, that we look at the lives of the apostles, we look at Paul's life, and our lives just don't look like that. What we forget is that the Gospels, that the apostles, they're writing to ordinary people, ordinary everyday people like you and I. We tend to focus the stories on the stars on the stage, who they're about, but we forget that they're actually communicating with and writing to ordinary people. And as extraordinary as we think we are, for today's purposes, we are ordinary people despite what your parents may have told you at some point in your life. (laughs) For today's purposes, you're gonna be ordinary, not extraordinary. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. Um, Eugene Peterson, probably best known for um, writing the translation message of the Bible, which we use a lot in our teaching because we think it just illuminates the scripture in a special way. And he was a special man, but one of the things he says uh, was, we often let the big ideas, the majestic vistas of salvation, the grand visions of God's work in the world, and the great opportunities for making an impact in the name of Jesus distract us from taking with gospel seriousness the unglamorous ordinary. We often let those things, this, these majestic ideas of what we believe, the way we believe God might use us in the world, there's nothing wrong in doing that, but it, that can tend to distract us from the, I love the unglamorous ordinary. But that is... That's our lives. That's where we live. That's the everyday. It is the unglamorous ordinary. So most of us here will not be pastors or missionaries, although we have sent missionaries out from our church, and that's always amazing. But what we are, we're stay-at-home moms. We're people that sit in cubicles, and we really can't even define what our job is fully. But I know I sit in a cubicle, and I talk on the phone a lot. We're plumbers, we're electricians, we are a lot of different things. So the assumption this morning is that at some point, and I know this was my life, when I go back to that time where I really was feeling guilty, and even more moving forward, I still ask this question sometimes, but that everyone in the room at some point has stopped what you're doing and looked up or, or put your head in your hands and you said, does this matter? Does this matter? Does my work matter? Does my life matter? Does, does all of this, all of its parts, everything, does it matter? Do I matter? I think we've all asked that question. So what I want to do this morning as we look at Acts 18 is to answer the question, 
What does it look like for ordinary people to be on mission for God? What does it look like for ordinary people like you and like me to be on mission for God? And as we do that, we're going to take our cues from um, one of the only couples that's mentioned in the New Testament. And Paul meets them in the beginning of chapter 18 here, Priscilla, or Aquila and Priscilla. So before we get into the, to, um, 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, let me set the context really quickly here. So Paul has just left a- Athens, where um, Derek talked about last week, preaching at the Areopagus, where his message is really received with kind of a mixed a mixed bag. He, some become believers, but others become more enraged. And so Paul has, um, has left Athens, and he's traveled west to the Roman city of Corinth. Um, now, Corinth was a very important port city. There was a lot of, of, um, of transportation that went through there because you had, you had Italy on the west, and um, you had Greece in the east. And so this was a very important um, place that um, a lot of um, trade came through. So we know from reading in First and Second Corinthians that there were some crazy things going on in Corinth too. So it was sort of like the Las Vegas of its day, if you can imagine that. That's more of a modern picture of what maybe Corinth looked like. So pretty crazy things going on in there um, in this port city. So again, pick up, the, um, pick up the story in Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so we see Paul here come to Corinth. He meets this guy named Aquila, along with his wife Priscilla, Um, They were forced to leave Rome because the emperor Claudius um, didn't like what was happening with some of the Jews in the temple with talking about Christ. And so he um, removed, he forced all of the Jews to leave Rome. And so they find themselves in this city, Corinth. They're leather workers by trade. And what they did was they made, they were tent makers. They made tents. And so... Um, Paul meets them as they set up shop, and they begin working together. And the assumption is here that because most people with their trade and their work was also the place where they lived, it's also believed that Paul lived with them. Um, And so they were an ordinary couple, displaced from their, their home country in a new place, just trying to find a job and make ends meet. Sound familiar? Yeah, some of our stories. But they are ordinary people, a husband and wife, on a mission together. And so we're going to look at three hallmarks of their life that applies to us as ordinary people trying to be on mission for God. The first thing that we see with Aquila and Priscilla is um, flexibility. So that's the first, first point is be flexible. Now, I mentioned this, it's not nothing super spiritual about be flexible. I mean, it sounds like a value that we should all embrace, but I think it's important because it starts to dig at a much deeper thing within our hearts. So you see, we, we are not victims of our circumstances. We're not victims of our circumstances. We are prodigals on a journey with God. And if you think about, we're not victims of our circumstances, we're prodigals on a journey with God, but here's the thing we don't get to call the shots. God is calling the shots. 
And for some of us, that's hard because we want to call the shots. We want control over our lives. You think about how all of that has been blown up within the last year, right? I mean, many of us had plans in 2020 for certain things to happen, to do certain things, and we had to jettison those plans because we're in the midst of a a pandemic. And that's always hard because life throws you curveballs. Life changes, this happens, somebody loses a job, financial situation changes, um, family member passes away. I mean, there's lots of different things that affect our lives in different ways, but we're not victims of those circumstances. We have to see that God is orchestrating and moving things for his glory. And so Priscilla and Aquila, here they are, refugees in a strange land, but they have a choice. They have a choice before them that either they can be bitter about the fact that they have been booted from their home country and how unjust and unfair that is and live in bitterness about their story of, you know, where everyone they meet, they tell about how they were booted out of Rome and they're mad about it and they're gonna sue, you know, whoever. Um, Or they can believe and begin to open their eyes to the horizon on what God is doing and say, God is doing something in this. It's almost like going back to the Joseph thing, what, what man intended for evil, God meant for good. And so we can believe that God is orchestrating something, directing us on a path of his choosing. I hear people say this all the time. It's one of the great questions of the faith that in a lot of ways we can't fully answer, but we can slightly answer. And that is, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever asked that question or heard somebody ask that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? And the problem with the question is it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The, the question really is, why does a loving God show grace and mercy and kindness and tenderness to people that do not deserve it? Because we are people here today, we may think ourselves as ourselves as good, but really what we deserve is death because of sin, because of sin entering the world and sin entering our lives. And so God shows us grace and mercy, even in the... This is not to undermine anybody's pain or things that you've been through because the reality that we live in is an unjust world where we have the world has fallen, people are fallen. When sin enters the world, it corrupts everything and we have to live in that. It's why people have to die. It's why we get sick. It's why your house falls apart. It was raining last night and our roof is leaking. It's like, oh, why, you know. It's, it's why these things happen. The world is breaking down and it's not how it's supposed to be. There's some things we just won't understand this side of heaven, but you know what? God is about one thing. He is about his glory. He's about his glory. For me, when the door shut on ministry, because I believed so strongly that that's what God wanted for me, and I would tell people that, God wants me to be in full-time vocational ministry, that when it didn't happen, bitterness and anger began to take root in my life. And maybe you're sitting there this morning and you've, you've felt like God has had you on a trajectory and for whatever reason, it's not on that trajectory anymore. You're not in the place that you thought you'd be. It's hard for bitterness and anger not to seep in unless you have the perspective of God is leveraging something in my life for his, for his glory. And the beautiful thing is being a little bit older and now being 20 plus years removed from that, I can see, I have the perspective now that God was doing all things for the good of those who love him. Sometimes we just don't have the benefit of time on our side. We're not on the other side of Romans 8, 28. 
were on the closer side. But, but years later, I can look back and I say, thank God that, that he didn't have me on that path that I thought was the path for me because I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have experienced the things that I've experienced. I wouldn't know the grace of God like I know the grace of God. I'm, we may not be in Jacksonville. We may not be in this church. I mean, there are things that didn't seem like they made sense at the time that now they make sense because we can look back and hindsight's 2020 and we can see, we can trace God's hand on what he was doing and where he was leading us. But back then I thought I knew better than him and I didn't hold my life with an open hand to what God could do with it. Fast forward a little bit, in 2016, um, I was laid off from my job and Ann and I were looking for a job. I ended up finding a, a job up in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I move up there and commuting back and forth. And we really prayed about whether that was the right thing for us to do. And we just felt like for whatever reason it was that God had something in it for us, even though we knew this was our life, this was our community, this doesn't make sense, but it just seems like what we're supposed to do. And we had a big party in here, a goodbye party for us. And all of you wrote wonderful little notes to us about how much we meant to you, and maybe the whole thing was for that, just for you to write a note on how much we meant to you. No, so we, we go to Charleston, we're there for a, a very short time, and I get fired from my job, like wrongfully fired, like you should sue the company fired. And we prayed together. Oh. I almost fell off the stage in the first service. This is just par for the course. So we prayed together, and we said, God is, God is doing something in this. So we met a friend when, I, when we were up there for that short period of time, and he said, hey, we're planning a church. Can you come help us? And, of course, Ann and I are like, well, you know, she's director of first impressions here. I mean, I've been an elder in the church for a long time. We've helped to plant churches we would love to. And so maybe it was just for a short period of time to help that church get off the ground. It's now thriving. They have their own space. It's in an area that's growing in the city. Maybe we played a little piece in that. But you know what? We were just, we were just keeping our eyes to the horizon. And we could have remained bitter about, I want to be in Jacksonville. I don't want to be in this place. But you know what? It would have, we would have just gotten bitter and not seen what maybe God had for us in that short season. And so... We knew it was time for us to come back here, and so we did in faithfulness to God. So what are the hallmarks of ordinary people being on mission for God? First is to be flexible. The second one is to be hospitable. Be hospitable. I know what some of you are thinking. I've taken that gifts test before and I keep saying hospitality, or maybe I'm the furthest thing from hospitality and spiritual giftedness that there is. You say, that's not my gift. But being hospitable is not just about cooking for people or opening up your home to people. It really just is a general sense of, of saying being friendly to people, whether they're strangers or friends or guests. Being hospitable just means being friendly to people. Like we encourage our, our anchors here. Hey, if you're greeting, we want you to be hospitable. We're welcoming, welcoming somebody into a place. But this is hard for me. It may be hard for you too, because here's the deal. I'd rather just throw a few bucks at a good cause than to actually have to invest in being hospitable in the midst of that cause. But when I do that, I miss out, and I've done this in my life before, I miss out on the thrill of being on mission with God. I miss the thrill of being on mission when I say, I'm just going to 
I'm going to give some money to it, but I'm not going to do the hospitable thing. And some of you know Anne, who's sitting here in the front row, my wife. She's much more hospitable than I am. But what, what the cool thing, and much like Aquila and Priscilla, I've seen in our relationship is that God has strengthened our marriage. God has strengthened our marriage through this idea that we're, we're united in this idea of hospitality together. So even though we know at the end of the day, she's the one that really wants you to come over, and I'm not super down with it. But as, as I've let some of that go, I've seen God put us on mission together, and that, that God has really forged our commitment to each other around this common cause, that we love God more than we love ourselves, and we want to be open to what he would do with our lives. And so I've let some of that go, not all of it, but um, no, we, we love it. We, when we moved into our house, we said, we want this to be a place where people would come, that our doors are always open, and Anne loves it. I mean, we live close to the beach, and so people will park in front of our house. She tells people, use the hose, An outdoor shower is yours, like everybody, you know, strangers pull up, everybody's a stranger she just hasn't met yet. I, on the other hand, I'm like, don't talk to people. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're going to want something to eat, and they're going to be in the house. She's like, that's the point. I'm like, no, it's not. But I've seen God unite us around this, this common cause. And you know what? It brings both of us joy when we see that. We, we love to see God work in the lives of people through our hospitality. It brings us joy. And you see, we miss out on those things when we, when we pull back and withdraw and say, yeah, Here's some money, go take care of it, but I don't want to really get involved with it. For Priscilla and Aquila, it was more than just people meeting in their home, which we know as we read in 1 Corinthians, there's four different places that we see Priscilla and Aquila talked about in Scripture. One of them is in 1 Corinthians. We know that the, the, the church uh, met in their home, but for Priscilla and Aquila, it's, it's more likely that they're living out what's talked about in 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11, which I, I love. Let's follow this verse together. 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of, you, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Let me read that part again. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others. Not yourself. To serve others. And here's the thing, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, when we talk about inviting anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace, we get to be stewards of that grace. That as we invite people in, we can serve people and be stewards of grace in various forms, meaning it all doesn't look alike. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should also do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So you have preaching and you have serving. It's one, it's, it's one or the other. Those who preach and those who serve. And I love this idea that if anyone serves, they should, should do so with the strength that God provides. That God is energizing people that serve. Because I think sometimes we think it's, it's, I don't have, I've got no more margin to do anything because we're all so busy. You ever talk to somebody and they say, I'm not busy? So what's going on? How you been? I'm busy. 
But like COVID's blown all of that up, right? We're sitting in our homes for weeks at a time in some cases. So when we say we don't have margin, then it's hard, it's hard to serve. But if we're open to what God might be doing, that he can strengthen us in that, that there's strength from God when we're willing to say, when we're willing to serve. One of the greatest ways to be on mission is to open your eyes to the possibility that God might want to use what you have, be it your home, be it your business, be it your skills, to leverage those things for the ministry of the gospel. And I, th I think about this, one of the things Anne did recently was she gets a lot of requests from people that are asking for just little minor projects to be done around their house that you know maybe they don't, you know, don't have a, a way to do it or um, you know, older families or, or widows, you know, that's, that's what we're all about is going and helping. Well, she got a group of guys together that have awesome tools and they know how to use them. But like, here's the thing, you don't want me on that team. You don't want me showing up at your house to do some kind of a project. That's when you call Seth Johnson. He's, he's great at that. <laughs> Not me. But God is leveraging different gifts, different giftedness of, of different people to do. The question is, are you willing? The question is, are you willing to give God your gift in order to do that? We know that um, Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half, a little bit further down in Acts. He leaves for Syria, and, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila travel with him. And they arrive in e Ephesus, was the first place they went. And so Paul's there for like a short period of time and he leaves them in Ephesus and then goes on to another place. And so the story picks up, Priscilla and Aquila are attending the synagogue there in Ephesus and this guy named Apollos comes to preach. And pick up the story in Acts 18, 24, it says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So here you have Apollos, an exciting teacher. Man, that guy can preach. But he's got bad theology. And so what do Priscilla and Aquila do? They immediately, I don't have my phone, but they immediately tweeted out what was happening in the church and that how, what a terrible speaker this guy was. And then they put it, you know, because when you do one social media channel, it went out on into Instagram, Facebook, all of them about what a terrible synagogue this was. And they were no longer going to go here, there, or they went to lunch with their friends and said, you know, we just don't feel like we're being fed at this synagogue anymore. So we're going to go try out some different synagogues. We're more of, we're more Paul people. We're not, we're not Apollos people. We, we're, we're more down with Paul. Verse 26, they didn't, they didn't wait for some church official to show up. And rather than rip him, or, man, isn't this what we do today? Like, just um, passively undermine people? Well, that's the passive-aggressively undermining. We love that one. 
or confront him publicly. Seen that too. They, what they do is really the most redemptive thing that they could have done. They invite him to their home to talk. Very simple. They invite him to their home to talk. Imagine that. And it's, really, it's a really cool story because Apollo, the story of Apollos, he goes on to be a force for the gospel, um, which we'll read about more in Acts. But he was a big part of the picture of what God was doing. But Priscilla and Aquila played a, a little role in that. We have to believe that that seed that they planted in having that conversation with him that day in their house changed the course of history. A little conversation. And the other cool thing that we see in this is that the four times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, it's a couple times that it's Aquila and Priscilla, and then there's other times that it's Priscilla and Aquila. So we, we see that there is, a, there is a one flesh here. That It's not that Aquila, because he's the dude, is more important than Priscilla. Because it's believed by, by um, theologians that Priscilla was the one that actually led the charge in the conversation with Apollos that she held more of the theological understanding. And so what I love about this is it just enhances the idea this is one flesh, and it's how we live out in community that I think sometimes in the church, and we get asked this question all the time, what is the role of women in leadership of the church? And I want you to know that we believe like this. We believe believe women have tremendous influence on this church, and this idea that us being complementarian means that we are one in the way that God has shaped us, the way that God has um, in, in, our, in our humanness, and that God uses women to lead in this church. I think, you know, Derek would tell you in staff meetings, it's predominantly women that have influence in that. We believe that, you know, even we think about the role, this idea of the role, we believe that the role in the office, the office of elder is exclusive to men, and that comes from Scripture. But that doesn't mean that Anne doesn't have influence with me in that. We are one flesh. Just like Priscilla and Aquila here, we're one flesh. And so when they came to talk to Apollos, it wasn't, well, there goes Priscilla off on the rails again, you know, telling this guy what she doesn't like about something. No, that it was, it's always them together. They're never mentioned apart from each other. And so think about your lives. When people talk about you, do they say, like, when people talk about us, it's not Dan, the elder, it's Dan and Ann. And sometimes it's Ann and Dan, because there are times that I come to church and I work for her because she's the director of First Impressions. And so you'll see me sweeping in the parking lot at 8 o'clock. So there's a, there's a, mutual, there's a mutual thing going, going on here, that one is not impo- more important than the other. And so... The hallmarks of ordinary people being on mission God, being flexible, being hospitable, and the third one, be willing to risk. We're going to wrap up with this one. There's a couple of other places in Scripture where Paul talks about Priscilla Aquila. One is in Romans 16. Romans 16, 3 through 5, um, Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila. There she is first again. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all of the churches." of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So here we have a church, house church going on again, and they risked their lives for him. They risked their lives for him. Now, we don't know exactly what, what that is. We know that they traveled to Corinth, that they traveled to Ephesus, and that they were in Rome with churches meeting 
in their house. But we don't know what it was specifically that Paul is talking about here that they risked their necks. But we know that they risked their necks. And not only is he appreciative of it, the entire church is, um, or it should be grateful to them for what they've done. But what I, do know, I, what I do know is this, when it comes to risk, that we only risk when we know that the reward is greater than the risk. That we only risk when we know the reward is greater than the risk that we're taking. And I mention this because for my life, I feel like my decisions are oftentimes, and my willingness to risk is oftentimes driven more by fear than it is by faith. What I mean by that is I fear of what people will think of me. I don't want to embarrass myself. I'm never going to preach again because I almost fell off the stage. And after the first talk, it was amazing. And I went to walk and fell right there. I mean, I didn't like fall, but I tripped. And it's like embarrassing. So you're like, well, I'm never doing that again. So I, you know, that's just a small example, but it's relatively new. But like things where you have risked. Things where you have risked, and it's, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I knew we shouldn't have done that because this and this and this happened, and now the bitterness seeps in. Fear of what people will think about me. Fear of not being comfortable. People that know me know that this is a big one for me. Man, don't mess with my comfort. That's my time. That's my this. That's my that. Don't mess with it. Don't be hospitable because I'm all about comfort. I want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix or do whatever, eat what I want to want without being bothered. That's kind of what that boils down to. I don't want to be bothered. So I'd rather be comfortable than to risk. Fear of losing control. Again, the last year has kind of blown this up for all of us, but man, we hold tightly to wanting to be in control of our environment, don't we? Oftentimes to the detriment of being willing to step out into places where God may have us and it's only robbing us of joy that God wants to show to us. Fear financial loss. Again, craziness of the last year. We don't know what's gonna happen down the road. I better hold tightly to what I got so that I make sure I have enough down the road so I hold tightly to it. I don't wanna risk with my money. But isn't it funny what happened with GameStop? Anybody follow that? Now, these guys over here do. They're invested in it. Some millionaires over here in the, in the youth now. now but isn't it, it, I think what it shows, so this, that what happened was the stock was a short sell, and so this, there was kind of this grassroots thing through Reddit where it, you know, they wanted everybody to buy GameStop, so the price would go up, and the price went from like a few dollars to over $400 a share, and so people made a lot of money. But it's amazing what people are willing to risk when something's a sure bet. It's amazing what I'm willing to risk when I know something is a sure bet, when I know it's gonna pay off. You had people that they were turning their couches upside down trying to find enough to go buy a share of GameStop because they knew that that money was gonna come back to them tenfold. You wanna know what a sure bet is? 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, 
spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven. So when we risk for the kingdom, it's a sure bet that we, we are sending that money to a place. We're sending that time to a place can never spoil, can never fade. And Jesus has purchased this inheritance through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Doesn't that change the way we even think and look at risk? It's already paid for. When you know something is already paid for, you order the most expensive thing on the menu, don't you? Why? Because I can. And when it's paid for, the price has been paid by Jesus, and our inheritance is in heaven, it should free us up to be willing to risk our lives, to leverage our lives for everything. And I know when we look at the heavyweights of Scripture, when we look at Paul, we look at the apostles, man, it's overbearing. But no, ordinary people who are on mission for God, ordinary people like you, like me, that are on mission for God can do extraordinary things. And I believe that. God can, God can use something very small that you think, man, that was just, that was really nothing for me to give up. Or maybe it was a big risk for me, but God can use it if we do it in faith to him. I love, um, there's a guy, G.K. Chesterton, who was a, he's an author and sort of a critic and comic, English guy, um, wrote some really, he's got some really amazing quotes. One of the things that he says is, he said, the most extraordinary thing in the world, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. And it's small. It's like this, you know, like, yeah. The, the things that we think of as being ordinary can be extraordinary when we leverage all of it for God. Because, again, Jesus has purchased our inheritance through his death, burial, and resurrection. We can be flexible. We can say, God, take whatever I have, my life, my giftedness, as small as it might be, and use these things for your kingdom. We can be open to what God is doing. We can be hospitable. We can just be friendly. Be more open to how God would leverage gifts in your life, things that you have. And lastly, we can risk. We can risk, and I, I tell you, there is no greater risk that would pay off for you in your life than for you to risk for the gospel. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but my encouragement is just lean into what God is doing. Begin to lift your head to the horizon. If you've felt guilt and shame because you felt like your life hasn't panned out like you felt like it should have, and some of that anger has been directed towards God and everybody around you, know that God has a plan for your life, that, that, that your life matters that things matter, your work matters, it matters to God, he loves us. Let's stand. Father, in that, in that spirit, we, we just come to you as your people. God, needing to hear your message this morning. I, I just thank you for the story of Aquila and Priscilla. You leveraged their lives 
to change the course of history, an ordinary couple. I thank you that you take ordinary, our ordinary lives, our ordinary work, our ordinary stuff, and you make it extraordinary because of the gospel. God, we need to hear that message this morning that all of those, all that shame and guilt can be lifted when we trust in Christ and his work. God, help us to lean into what you're doing in the world. God, sometimes we get so blinded by whether it's our own poor decision-making or our own things that we're holding on to, but God, I just pray that you open our eyes to the horizon. God, for couples in here today, would you, would you forge and unite them around a common commitment to the mission of God? And I believe even today, there's a, there's a marriage in here that you're beginning to light on fire as they lean into this. God, we just thank you for what you're doing. We entrust it all to you in Jesus' name.